0: This is The Dairy Download, brought to you by Everag Insights and the International Dairy Foods Association, where we offer extra-sharp market and policy insights on dairy. I'm your host, Phil Plourd. Kathleen Wolfley is still on assignment, but we have my talented colleague, Katie Burgess, back for another episode. Hey, Katie. Hey, Phil. On today's episode, we're focusing on standing up for milk in schools. We have two guests offering interesting perspectives from the front lines, Chuck Turner from Turner Dairy and Sean Steichen of Diversified Foods Incorporated, an actual alumnus of the IDFA Next Gen Leadership Program. We'll get to that in a moment. First, here's a rundown on markets as of Tuesday, February 27th. Block cheddar cheese at 161 per pound, up 6% from last week. Barrels higher than blocks, 167, up 4%. Butter, 284, up 2% from a week ago and non-fat dry milk the only negative on the week 118 per pound down 1%. All right Katie, what's the most important thing right now?
1: As I continue to talk to customers whether it's dairy producers or processors or end users of cheese, the thing I keep coming back to is this very delicate balance right now between milk supply, cheese production and cheese demands. Over the past week, couple of weeks, we got data that shows U.S. milk production was down more than 1% in January, yet the latest cold storage report showed cheese stocks still up half a percent year over year. We continue to make more cheese. Typically, there's been more milk in the heavy cheese-producing regions, plus there's more cheese capacity ramping up and going to continue to come online later this year. And so from the supply side, we still have plenty of cheese out there. And demand is, we'll call it choppy at best, exports are on, then off, and it seems like that pattern could continue. And here domestically, I'm not sure consumers are out of the woods quite yet, so spending at both the retail level and in the food service space remains choppy.
0: You know, the cheese markets are always – we we don't have – unvolatile times in cheese typically, but I've been looking at just as we lay out some things like all last year, the the sort of feast or famine on cheese was pretty remarkable, largely dictated by exports like exports on, we went up and then you just see these spike ups and spike lows more than once. And I think that speaks to that uneasy relationship. I mean, we can wake up one morning and we feel short and off we go. And then, you know, two weeks later, Oh, wait a second, the export slowed or whatever. And then we're right back down to the basement. It's a, a little more jarring roller coaster ride than usual.
1: And as we think forward for the months to come, it feels like we're still on the roller coaster. I don't see it changing drastically anytime soon.
0: No, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later in my Fearless Predictions, just a little teaser.
1: Ooh. So, Phil, what do you think is the most important thing right now?
0: You know, I think performance in Asia is really a critical factor in. It plays back a little bit to your cheese story around demand. I just think that Asian markets remain lackluster. We saw a GDT pulse auction yesterday, disappointing results. Um, the economic data in China remains weak. We've been, you know, looking at trade into places like Malaysia and the Philippines. That's just been slack, largely tied to pretty robust food inflation. And it just seems like we can't catch a gear in terms of Asian demand for dairy products. And, you know, it, it's like we, we go a little bit and then we just kind of run into the wall. And we, when we look for, well, why, why, why? Um, you know, oftentimes the answer is just that business in Asia just isn't consistently good. And I think before we see any real fireworks price wise, especially in the powder space, um, you know, I think we need to see better performance in those places.
1: That's definitely true. I mean, Mexico is usually our biggest trading partner, but those Southeast Asian countries tend to rank high up there. So super important to watch what's going to happen there.
0: And, you know, pretty remarkable. In a year where trade, you know, U.S. cheese exports were down, if it weren't for Mexico, I don't know what we would have done because Mexico stepped up to the plate and increased their take from the U.S. by 20%. So it just speaks to how, you know, we need Mexico uh, if we're going to keep the wheels on because Asia just isn't performing. What's your stat of the week?
1: My stat of the week comes from the milk production report. It's negative 10,000 head. That's how many dairy cows we lost in New Mexico in the month of January. And New Mexico, I mean, the Southwest as a whole has been losing production, but New Mexico has really been ground zero. When we look at those cow numbers, New Mexico's down 30% just in four years. And as of January, the New Mexico dairy herd is the smallest it's been since the year 2000. So when I look at that, Fewer cows in New Mexico, but more plant capacity coming online soon really makes you question how that region is going to play out here over the next eighteen months.
0: It's going to be like a sequential ratcheting up in the drama, right? We're going to have a cheese plant open this year. We're going to have a cheese plant open next year, and you know the milk keeps slipping. And I, you know, the people we talk to say it's not coming back to New Mexico anytime soon, if ever.
1: No, we'll see what happens in Texas, but uh, definitely going to be the. Main region of the U.S. to watch.
0: From reliably long to all of a sudden pretty chronically short. I, I, I think that's a, a major headline story in the cheese market's fortunes for the next whatever, for a while.
1: For sure. So, Phil, how about you? What's your stat of the week?
0: Oh, you're going to love this one, Katie. My number is minus 6%, and that represented the year-over-year deficit in butter stocks as of January 31st per the latest USDA cold storage report. Now, there was some drama around that report between you and I. Last show, we had a head-on-head bold prediction. Typically, butter stocks increased by 43 million pounds between December and January. You took the over. I took the under. The over won by a healthy margin plus 7 million pounds. And so I think that might take a little of the anxiety out of the butter market. I mean, it it was good to catch up. But- We're still down 6% year over year. So I don't think it's a situation where people are like, oh, well, yeah, you know, cold storage. We were up ahead of average in terms of growth. Everything's fine now. We still have a 6% year over year deficit. And I think, and you, you see this more than I do day to day, lots of anxiety out there among butter end users.
1: That is totally true. I think that the end users I talked to were happy to see that number. And I'll note, I was happy to take a bold prediction win as a newbie to the show. But I think the drama in the butter market is far from over this year. Just because after the past two years, people are uh, continued to to watch that one pretty anxiously.
0: All right. Well, after suffering a bold prediction beatdown, we got to get back up on the horse here. And so my bold prediction this time around is that we will not see block cheddar cheese prices in the month of March average over $1.80 per pound. We might touch it for a day. I know, Katie, you've heard me say this about 7 million times now. It's almost become a parody uh, that 150 cheese is too cheap and 180 cheese is too expensive. It goes back to that roller coaster You know that we get to the bottom of the, of the hill at 150 and we go to the top at 180 and we just kind of die out. I think that's going to continue. I, I just don't see this market getting over 180 anytime soon. We had a little upward momentum here, but I think the crest will be short of that mark. What about you?
1: For me, my bold prediction centers around USDA's Dairy Margin Coverage Program. That's USDA's program that dairy producers can sign up for once a year to help protect the margin between milk prices and feed costs. And in the past few years, it's paid out. My prediction is that in 2024, that program will pay out again enough to cover the cost of signing up for the insurance. Interesting. As of right now, the futures market doesn't show those payouts happening. But when you look at the data over the past 20 years, in all but two of them, the markets and the payouts from that program more than covered the cost of signing up. So I predict that'll happen again. And I encourage any producers out there to go talk to their local FSA office about it.
0: Yeah. Last year, there were a few times we said, well, the the benefits are going to run out in August. And and they didn't, right? I think 11 months out of 12, right? Uh, Last year.
1: That's right. And so, I mean, with feed prices coming down, the payouts for 2024 are not going to be nearly as big as they were last year, but I still think it's an important risk management tool for producers. So they should definitely go give it a look.
0: Now let's hear from our first guest. We are excited to welcome Chuck Turner to the show. Chuck is the president of Turner Dairy Farms, a family business that his grandfather started in 1930 at its present location in suburban Pittsburgh. Turner Dairy has earned top national awards for taste, And quality and is well known for its innovative flavored milk line. Chuck, welcome to the Dairy Download. It's a
2: pleasure to be here. I'm a big fan of the Dairy Download actually.
0: We're glad for that. Before we get really into it, can you tell us about Turner Dairy and what's led to such a long history of innovation and success in the family business?
2: We were founded in 1930 by my grandfather and at Turner's it's always been about the highest quality milk and dairy products with a special emphasis on great taste. Uh, This goes way back to my grandfather's prized Guernsey cows. More recently, we've had a lot of success with limited time offerings of flavored milk. Uh, For example, we just wrapped up brownie batter milk, uh, which we featured for the holiday season, and have just introduced red velvet milk, uh, which is the perfect Valentine's gift for that special someone.
0: So how do you develop those concepts? I mean, that sounds delicious on the face of things. Uh, I was wondering what, what you meant by good flavor, but those sound like great flavors. How do you go about developing those products?
2: Yeah, we have a product management group that meets every month. And we have people from different disciplines within the, in the company, from production to marketing to sales. And part of what we do is try to look uh, 12 to 18 months out and think about what flavors we want to feature for the upcoming year and focus on being fun and, uh, and catching people's attention.
0: Today, our episode's all about the milk served in schools. How does school milk fit into the larger product line for Turner Dairy?
2: School milk is central to our mission here at Turner Dairy. We have the privilege of serving about 170,000 students every day, a responsibility that we take very seriously. We also consider it a wonderful privilege and opportunity to establish our milk brand as one that students enjoy drinking and want to drink at home. Hopefully, they'll want to serve Turner's milk to their own family one day.
0: So there's about 30 million children and adolescents in federal school milk programs. Turner Dairy is part of a pledge with other processors to deliver essential nutrients to America's students while reducing calories and added sugars. It's called, I think, the Healthy School Milk Commitment. Can you tell us a little bit about what this pledge means and why is it important to Turner Dairy?
2: Yeah, we've pledged that by the start of the 2025-26 school year, all of our flavored milk for schools will have less than 10 grams of added sugar per half pint. Uh, At this point, I can tell you at Turner's, our biggest seller, fat-free chocolate milk is already there with only eight grams of added sugar. And we're currently working to reformulate our low-fat strawberry, chocolate, and vanilla milks. Um, The other thing, we have a limited time offering milk coming out next month, which is going to be chocolate banana in a low-fat version. That is also, we're working to do these, these fancy flavors also at that less than 10 grams.
0: So are you getting those LTOs into the schools as well then?
2: Yeah, we do a fall and a spring seasonal to kind of break up the monotony of the school lunch.
0: I don't know everything, Chuck, but that seems really unusual to me. I mean, is that I mean, is, is that pretty unique?
2: Yeah, it is. I I tell uh, some of my colleagues about that, and they uh, they kind of look at me like I'm crazy.
0: What do you think about the prospects of whole and two percent milk returning to school meals? How would that impact your business?
2: That would be great for our business. It was really great to see the uh, whole milk for healthy kids act pass the house with three hundred and thirty votes. Special shout out to PA Congressman GT Thompson for that work. Uh, Still needs to pass the Senate, but this will give school food service directors the option, not a mandate, but an option to serve whole and 2% milk again. Maybe just as important, it will also resolve the uncertainty that food service directors have about putting low fat chocolate milk back on the menu.
0: How can we get people excited about the 2% movement, whole milk movement, and get them to advocate for getting it back in schools?
2: I don't know what could be more important to fluid milk processors. You know, for fourteen or fifteen years, we haven't been able to put our best products in front of our most important consumers. We've seen the track record of what fluid milk sales have done during that time. If we want to get this thing fixed, you know, this is this is an important first step.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, in my in my school days, I did learn a little bit of math, and it is interesting, you know, when you say that because if you look at the sales data, two thousand nine is sort of the point of demarcation. And that's 14, 15 years ago, right? When, when things started to slide pretty hard.
2: Yeah. And, and think about the, the time difference between when a kid is a junior, senior in high school and when they're starting their own family. It's not a long time period for, for a lot of families. And, you know, it's not too long from when they get out of school to when they're deciding what's gonna, what they're going to serve their kids.
0: Yeah. We've arguably lost a generation, right? The kids in 2010. I mean, that's, you know, whatever, 13, 14 years ago. Yeah, right. Research shows that parents overwhelmingly support 2% whole milk in school meals. What have you heard from parents and other consumers about the, the topic?
2: Well, consumers overwhelmingly choose 2% in whole milk when they have the choice in schools. It's it's even actually more more uh, overwhelming when you look at the data for um, lower-income households. When we have routes, whether they're urban, suburban, or rural, low-income neighborhoods overwhelmingly choose whole milk. So when we take higher fat milk off the school lunch program, you're taking it off the menu for these kids.
0: Thinking back about the LTOs and relationships with school meal directors, that can't be an easy job, right?
2: Oh yeah. Food service directors in schools have one of the hardest jobs I know of. Their rules for uh, compliance and reimbursement with USDA are, are not a lot less cumbersome than our federal milk marketing rules. Not to mention, they have school budgets, uh, school boards, parents to answer to, food safety, staffing. And, you know, once we get this passed, we still have a lot of work to do to convince them, school district by school district, to get 2% white milk, for example, low fat chocolate back on the menu for kids.
0: Chuck, it's kind of important to drive back to the question of flavor, people's enjoyment of the product. You know, I mean, the 2% whole thing is, I mean, it's really about providing a high quality product, a very tasteful product, a product that kind of gets you on the road to lifelong nutrition with beverage milk. Is that, I mean, it's not just about, you know, selling more components, right?
2: Right, Phil. I, I think when, you know, this this wasn't done with bad intentions. I, I think that people can objectively look at the difference between fat-free milk and 2% milk and think that fat-free is better, better for a kid. But, you know, I think in in that context, we forget that, that eating is one of the great pleasures and joys we have in life. And when we take the, our best products away from the school lunch program, we are not helping kids to make late, lifelong choices in what they eat and drink that are going to be in their best interest, you know as they live their lives if, In other words, if we take milk off their menu, we're not helping them
0: and it feels like the science and the conversation around fat has i mean it's it's evolved remarkably over the past decade or you know right was i it was, was two thousand and fourteen, the Time magazine cover fat is good or butter is good right i mean it's not like it's not like we're running against the wind here.
2: No certainly, uh you know it's it's our nature as a country to demonize certain food ingredients or categories, and fat certainly was that you know we don't know how that is gonna ebb and flow in the future, but the reality is that dairy fats are are good for you, especially in the the low amounts that we have in fluid milk,
0: so Chuck, how do you feel about regulators and rule makers? Kind of in the middle of the process, making these choices f- instead of parents, really, right? It, it, for what kids are eating in schools. So how, does, how does that sit with you? Um, there's a
2: place for it that for, you know, I don't think anybody wants unhealthy meals served in schools. But I, I do think at least we only operate in a, in a couple states, but there is quite a lot of enthusiasm, at least in Pennsylvania, for how the school meal rules are enforced. You know, food service directors have a hard job, as we discussed, and for for food service directors that are trying to put a good meal out there to satisfy kids, I would hope that there would be more latitude given.
0: Chuck, thanks so much for being part of the Dairy Download today.
2: Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
1: Next, let's hear from someone who brings an ESL perspective to the conversation.
0: We are excited to welcome Sean Steichen to the show. Sean is the Senior Director of Strategic Initiatives at Diversified Foods Incorporated. In this role, Sean works with DFI's many industry and key strategic business partners to promote the benefits of shelf-stable pantry fresh milk. Sean, welcome to The Dairy Download. Thank you. Very excited to be here. So, Sean, let's start out by talking about shelf-stable milk. What is it? What makes it shelf-stable? And how does the product differ from regular milk, if you will, in the grocery store?
3: Yeah, no, that that's a great question. And I would probably say it's the most common question I get in having discussions around shelf-stable milk. So certainly without getting extremely technical, there's, there's three main pieces that stand out regarding shelf-stable milk, and that's going to be time, temperature, and process. So shelf-stable milk is going to be handled very similar to the traditional gallon jug of milk that you're consuming today with the exception of those three pieces. So it's going to be held for a little bit longer of time in the production process, produced at a little bit higher temperature in that production process. And then it's the the entire process is going to be a completely sterile environment, which removes the bacteria completely and allows it to become shelf-stable. Similar to the traditional milk that we all know in, in drink in the grocery store, as you mentioned, there's no preservatives, no additives. It's the same cow's milk that we're drinking through there, just that the process that I described there allows it to become shelf-stable for us to consume in that manner.
0: So over the years, I think it's fair to say we've seen shelf-stable milk appear prominently at one time, maybe a couple of decades ago kind of fade from view here in the United States. I see it uh, certainly elsewhere in the world. It's it's certainly prominent and prevalent. What advances have been made or how has the product evolved over the years and, and what is
3: diversified's role in all that? You know, if you look at different markets, especially over in Europe, for example, uh, most of the consumers are used to shelf stable milk in the packaging that exists, right? So, it it certainly has come a long way in the last five to ten years. I think with the recent events over the last handful of years, with all the supply chain situations we're working through, has helped the consumer receptiveness uh, come along with that. But diversified food specifically, you know, we've really expanded our production network, our innovation along the shelf stable portfolio and work to reach consumers in a different way uh, year over year and and help grow that message with it as well.
0: And along those lines, where do you see opportunities for growth of the shelf-stable products in the United States market?
3: You know, First off, as we always say, we are an incremental partner within the dairy industry. We're not looking to be a substitutional partner on a shelf-stable standpoint. Certainly when thinking different regions and different supply chain challenges that do exist, uh, there may be uh, situations where it may only be the only opportunity for those consumers to have a milk or a dairy-based product in a shelf-stable format. But obviously, we do feel there's a lot of opportunity for incremental growth here within shelf-stable in the U.S. So thinking through channels like food service, QSR, C-Store, uh, whether it be in schools, but before after school, backup stock as well. I think, you know, all those opportunities are, are certainly there to grow as well as any location that would probably be in a more rural or hard to reach area to as well. So where that distribution is, is a little bit more difficult for us to get to for all the things that we've been working through. And so, you know, on top of the growth there in terms of where, but also how, you know, our portfolio isn't just a fat-free chocolate or 1% white milk for schools. For example, you know, we have all four fats. We have a half, a heavy whipping cream, a half and half of buttermilk. High protein, lactose free. Um, and really, we can deliver it to our partners as a one stop solution in that manner for sure.
0: You mentioned lactose free as part of the school milk equation. I understand that there's more shelf stable milk lactose free today. Do you see that as a growth opportunity beyond schools?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as I mentioned, we do have lactose free in our portfolio today from a traditional white and flavored standpoint. And the consumption and the consumer evolution of that continues to grow, and so do we. So, how we bring that to market and work with that. And it's certainly something that we're obviously looking forward with and and being nimble along those ways. We recently completed a flavored lactose-free school milk pilot with our industry partners as well that saw great meal consumption and milk consumption increase results that we're really excited about. But in terms of growth opportunity in the market in schools and out of schools, we certainly feel that's a a big priority for us here as we look ahead to uh, 2024 and beyond.
0: For our episode today, the focus is on milk in school meals. So can you tell us about how school milk fits
3: into diversified foods portfolio? You know, our, our goal first and foremost within school milk uh, and that approach and channel is, is obviously to keep milk on plate uh, within the schools and the dairy industry partnership model. Our items today meet all of the current nutrition requirements. We're certainly seeing growth in breakfast in the classroom, post-school activities, grab-and-go, maybe take-home meals as all the different, you know, kind of regional opportunities are existing and we certainly also have schools purchasing today traditionally for other traditional lunch programs in a shelf-stable manner as well. So I think, you know, with, with all those different growth opportunities and partnership models that come to equation, we've worked really hard the last handful of, of months and really recently last couple of years to bring a competitive pricing structure to market model within the school channel approach in the shelf-stable uh, standpoint.
0: I imagine that the shelf stability in and of itself has some benefits. Can you talk about that and what other benefits does shelf-stable milk have uh, in a school milk context?
3: Certainly just the ability to to have it become shelf-stable, as you mentioned, obviously, first and foremost, is a huge benefit. So thinking through things that if your traditional distribution partner supply chain model today – uh, has any difficulties reaching on, on a backup or emergency or kind of uh, as needed basis, that may be a little little bit, little bit more difficult now than it was before. So having a pallet in the back room for that school to be able to consume in a long shelf life, a stored ambient method is really, really a, a great opportunity. Um, that school can have it sit there uh, and, and really kind of pull and refrigerate uh, before consumption and not jeopardize any ability to not have that school milk on plate uh, not be there. So weather-related issues, you know, obviously continue to play a factor in different regions. But also, you know, thinking through the innovation piece of it from a lactose-free standpoint, for example, if some of those current providers today are having difficulty producing an item that may not fit into their production requirements, you know, focusing on that within a shelf stable manner too kind of alleviates the shrink and the waste in that model and helps provide the benefits of a shelf-stable and effective sustainability manner for those schools.
0: And then taking it a step further, Diversified Foods is part of the Healthy School Milk Commitment. Can you tell us about why you joined this pledge and what it means for the diversified business?
3: Yeah, um, I think from a Healthy School Milk Commitment standpoint, you know, Diversified Foods along with the entire industry partners that are part of that are really, really working hard to ensure that milk stays and grows on plate for us in a school landscape method. So You know, knowing that Understand is going to take us to work together uh, as partners, to be nimble, innovative, and work together is something that really, you know, we we feel strongly for and with, and and are really proud to work with uh, IDFA and and industry partners alongside to make that happen for sure.
0: Taking the focus way outside the schools, we hear and see evidence that shelf-stable milk has some promise in export markets. I know we do a fair amount out out of California into China shelf-stable milk is pretty popular in China and and it's been provided for me by Europe over the years. U.S. trying to make some inroads there. Talk about exports and is diversified looking at the export markets and do you see potential there?
3: Great question and and, and great segment opportunity as well. I think certainly export is something that is for the growth opportunity, segment that we are reviewing uh, very closely. Um, You know, I would also say that we feel very strongly that there is incremental growth opportunity here in the U.S. still as well in front of us. So, Knowing that the capacity and going to market strategy we have is very strategic in nature and kind of working through that model as best we can, um, you know, continue to optimize that that incremental growth here in the U.S. is, is certainly a focus, but as well looking for the export opportunities and, and obviously for the shelf life, the long shelf life, shipping and store and ambient across multiple different temperature ranges, provide the export opportunities to be really, really impactful for us. So I think absolutely we're looking for that as the future um, and how we can help play, play a partnership role for that too. You know, Sean, one of the
0: interesting things that's arisen out of the success of Shelf Stable Milk is there are questions about capacity. Uh, is there enough? Are we seeing any efforts to develop additional capacity? It's been a little underserved at times, I get the impression. Talk about
3: capacity and what efforts are underfoot to, to build that if there are any. And I think looking back at the last five to 10 years and kind of where we're at now, you know, Diversified Foods has done a lot of great things with our partners together to bring additional capacity opportunities into market that exist today. So we have a regional approach uh, spread out across as well as our distribution footprint beyond that or, or post-production into market. And that's things like how we can innovate through different sizes on eight ounce or thirty two ounce, for example. But I would say overall, there's there's certainly a lot of uh, uh, different parties and groups continue to explore and ask questions about it. As so I think we all understand, as we kind of continue to move forward here, it will have to be a part of our solution into the market in some way, somehow. But the growth, the growth is there. Uh, the capacity has certainly evolved, and we, as as many as others, are here to help in any way we can for sure.
0: Well, Sean, thank you so much for joining us in the Dairy Download. Thank you. That's a wrap for today's show thanks to Katie for filling in. As always, we want to thank our production team, Matt Herrick, Mariah McKenzie, Michael Gooden, and Andrew Jerome at IDFA, and the Insights team over here at Ever Ag Insights. If you are interested in what Katie and I do for our day jobs, check us out at ever.ag. And remember, if you enjoy the show, hit the subscribe button and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform.
1: Thanks for listening to the Dairy Download. And until next time, stay sharp.